Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless A Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan. And you know what? Sometimes I record a Reckless A Talk and I am just so pleased and excited about it that I want to release it right away. No edits, no anything. And this week's episode is one of them. I got the pleasure of talking to any nominated game designer, voice actor, and apparently professional playlist maker, Samantha Lee. Sam has created an array of wonderful TTRPGs, ranging from the silly to the very serious. Her solo tarot game, Anamnesis, was their breakout hit, with playthroughs done by the folks of Friends at the Table and dear podcast friends over at Planet Arcana, and she has essentially been on fire ever since. They are also well-known for their insightful TikTok indie TTRPG reviews and spotlights. This is a wonderful episode, firstly, because Sam is a delight of a human, but also because I think it carries a lot of inspiration and wisdom for anyone creating basically anything. We cover collaboration and getting inspired by those around you, chasing what your brain is interested in, creating a TTRPG for ballet, and establishing perfection as the enemy with, of course, the usual caveat of and so much more. Please be sure to check the show description to find links to all their games and work. That's it for me. Hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll see you next time. Hello, Sam. Hi Nathan, how are you? Hi, how I am I who me? <laughs> yes, who you. me? I'm doing I'm doing quite tremendously today. How are you? I am also doing just brilliantly today. Ooh, just brilliantly. Well, you know, we we both got large mugs of some liquid. Yes. We're here, we're chatting, and it's time for some reckless a talk uh with with you. And so what more could any person want in their in their lives right now? I can't think of a single thing. Absolutely nothing. No, just a big mug of liquid and a great conversation. <laughs> mug of liquid is is mm-hmm. actually calling. I'm calling dibs now. Is my new band name? Mug <laughs> of liquid. Or a new uh, TTRPG? I think you know could oh, yeah. be could be a, a good one. Maybe something so. to to follow up on that one. Mm-hmm. You can that one. Anyone can take. I have the band. Someone else can make the TTRPG <laughs> mug of liquid. Perfect. But hey, Sam, why why are we talking about? TTRPG designs? Well, I don't know. Maybe you could take this as an opportunity to tell our listeners <laughs> who, who you are and, and oh. what you do for anyone who may or may not uh, know all the cool stuff that you're up to. Thanks, Nathan. What a great idea. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> While we're here, let's just, you know, why don't why don't we do that? Yeah. Hey, um, my name is Sam, uh, Sam Lee. I am a TTRPG designer. My pronouns are she, they. I uh, design games under Blinking Birch Games. And I also am known for making short form videos about indie TTRPGs. Uh, I mostly post those on TikTok and they are just about all sorts of games that are in the space. All of which are very lovely. <laughs> I'm really, you. I'm actually really excited to talk to you specifically about all those videos. In addition to all the cool game stuff that you have, uh, I say again as I have just like a copy of one of your games, just like sitting <laughs> awkwardly on my desk like a big Thanks. old nerd. But you know, Sam, we have a we have a bit of a format around here at Reckless mm-hmm. Talk. I really feel like I I am accidentally channeling a lot of uh, like 
drive time radio jock. We, we started <laughs> we started too goofy, and now I'm like uh-huh. aggressive. So I apologize that that's, no, that's not the usual vibe of mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. just being like, "All right, you tell people who you are." <laughs> uh, so I apologize for that. No, this is fantastic. It's the mug of liquid getting to me. Yeah, yeah. We, you know. We're, we're here to talk about tabletop role-playing games and mm-hmm. about about you in said tabletop role-playing games. But, you know, we can't we can't just start talking about all the amazing games that you've designed <laughs> or all of the games that you review and spotlight or the things you write about or, or any of that. No, we don't. We can't start there. We have to start from the beginning. We have mm-hmm. to start from your beautiful, you know, nerd game designer origins. And, and I have to ask, how how did you kind of get introduced to tabletop role playing games and or just kind of nerdy things in general uh, and and how did you start on the path that has led you here my first time playing any sort of TTRPG was Pathfinder at the end of high school. My friends were running it and I hadn't played it before. And it was so much fun, even though I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> because <laughs> yep. Pathfinder is, boy, that's one to start with, let me tell you. Yep. But we, we had a lot of fun. And I've always been interested in storytelling and the unique ways that you can tell stories. And so, and I've also always been interested in theater and also writing. And so RPGs (laughs) were just like a really nice merging, exactly, of like everything that I really enjoy. And so I played some Pathfinder in high school, um, didn't really do anything with RPGs for a couple of years, went to college. And then about halfway through college, my friend introduced me to the Adventure Zone podcast, which I think was kind of a gateway drug for a lot of people uh, into yeah. RPGs. Spoiler, you might not be the first person on this show to say, and then a friend told me about the Adventure Zone, <laughs> or I heard it, I was listening to my brother, my brother and me, and I listened to the Adventure Zone. Yeah. I actually hadn't listened to My Brother, My Brother and Me. Adventure Zone was the first one. I just really loved it. And it really opened my eyes to like what RPGs could be. And it reignited that interest in them. And at the time, I had never played D&D. I didn't know anybody who played D&D. And most people I knew weren't that interested in playing Mm D&D. So I ended up kind of cobbling together a group of people who I like, there were a couple of people who were like acquaintances, a couple of people I didn't know. (laughs) And then my brother who went to the same school as me, all of us were interested in trying it out. None of us had played before. And so it was this group of the six of us all learning to play together. And it ended up being phenomenal. I think that actually going into a game group with nobody having ever played yeah. a game like that before, totally. in some ways it's scary, but in a lot of ways it was fantastic because yes. nobody had these, you know, some people had like listened to the Adventure Zone and things like that. But other than that, people didn't have like these expectations on mm-hmm. things about rules and the story and all this So it was a really great experience. Um, And then my interest in it just grew from there. It was actually the summer of 2020 when I kind of first realized how many other games were out there. I think one of the first indie games that I read was Slayers by Spencer Campbell, um, which is just a phenomenal game. And it really opened my eyes as far as what other stuff is out there and all these really artsy games. And I just fell in love with it immediately, just the whole space. 
and just dove right into it. Um, and it's <laughs> just consumed my life since then. <laughs> um, that's so, what I do now. Yeah. Uh, it, literally. It's, yep. <laughs> basically. Um, I'm actually, I'll be moving to Virginia very soon. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to be trying to do this part time. So good for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm so stoked. I can't wait. It's exciting. And yeah, so literally it's just taken over my life for like two years, <laughs> three years now, I guess. <laughs> so it's always interesting, especially for game designers, I feel like, because for a lot of people in the actual play space, you know, there's kind of a straight line of like, I heard a podcast mm-hmm. or I was playing a game and I realized, oh, I could turn this into content and, <laughs> and mm. make a podcast out of it. You know, a lot of people obviously start as players and then say, ooh, game design. So that's interesting. I can make my own versions of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a very, always a very interesting mindset and kind of experience for me. So for you, was there a, a point where you took your kind of enjoyment for playing the game mm-hmm. and then said, I want to make games? Like, was there kind of a specific turning point for you or was it a a slow tumble <laughs> into into the life that you, you currently are leading? I think that it was kind of a little bit of both in a way. At the time that I started writing games, I had almost exclusively been a GM. Um, I had been kind of like a half player, half GM in a campaign, but for the most part, I had been a GM and I made a lot of homebrew stuff. Um, So in some ways, like I was already kind of designing my own stories with it, but I didn't really think about like making my own unique games until I discovered the indie scene. And part of it was just the inspiration of seeing all of this just incredible work done by all these really creative people Part of it was also the space itself. When I went and got on Twitter and saw all of these designers chatting with each other and seeing how inclusive a lot of the people in the space are, um, obviously there are still some issues with the space, right? (laughs) Uh, It's not all inclusive, but the people who I was chatting with, the um, games that I was reading, you know, a lot of people are really helpful towards new designers. It's a space where people support each other, and it's a space where people really like to share resources and get excited about everybody else's work. It was a space that I really enjoyed and that I wanted to be a part of. And so it was kind of a mixture of me thinking that making games would be really, really fun um, and a really good combination of everything that I loved. And then also just me really liking the space and really enjoying chatting with these designers and wanting to be part of that and contribute to it in a meaningful way. Yeah. To kind of get that big picture before we kind of get into the specifics of the things that you that you make and have made, what part about tabletop role-playing games grabbed you, either as a player, as a designer, as a game runner? Are there things that grabbed your heart and have kept you since? Mm-hmm. And has that changed or has that been magnified as you've kind of evolved more into a game designer as, ah, here are the things that I continue to be driven to or new things that I'm, I'm driven to explore? Originally, it grabbed me because, first of all, I I love collaborative storytelling. I love everybody at the table being surprised by things. I love everybody um, working together to take things in directions that challenge everybody else in a way that if you are creating a story with even one other person, you're going to create something that you might not have expected to create. You're going to kind of challenge your own creativity in that way. And I absolutely love that. I thrive off of it. Um, And RPGs do exactly that. 
also it's just like a really great way to get to know people like playing rpgs it's kind of my secret for like when i move to a new place (laughs) yeah Yeah. how to meet people because (laughs) you're gonna find people everywhere who like to play rpgs and so when i whenever i move to somewhere new that's kind of how i seek out making connections in that new place even when you are friends with somebody there's something that's kind of intimate about it, right? In the sense of, you know, you're bringing this other character to the table, you're portraying these emotions, you're both kind of using your own imaginations to create this thing together that can also strengthen bonds between people um, who you already know. In terms of designing games, it feels really incredible to be able to give people a tool to make these stories. I, again, love different formats of storytelling. I love being able to inspire people to tell stories, being able to create something that helps someone unlock that creativity in their brain is very fulfilling to me. It feels really good to be able to help people be creative and tell stories. You just said something that was really interesting to me, helping people unlock their creativity, right? Through kind of providing rules and framework, inviting that collaboration Mm -hmm. within that structure. Are you someone who is a creative person who likes having those kind of structures and stuff put on you as a fine, is is not an ideal word, but you get what I mean. And having having the lines to color within uh, to do whatever you want to, or are you just someone who has a passion of of helping people find those lines when they need them? Previously, I would say more so the the latter, you know, helping people find those lines. But, you know, I have created stories using games before that I really care about and that are really incredible experiences. So in those ways, yes, I have like used the framework of a game uh, to make these stories. I'm still figuring out in some ways the best way for me to create mm-hmm. stories. Sure. So I'm slowly learning that things like random tables <laughs> and um, room generators and stuff are really helpful for mm-hmm. me. It's hard for me to kind of create an idea without like a solid starting yeah. off point. And so I really like games and tools that provide just a little bit for you to latch onto as a base and then spring from from there. Thinking about providing that for other people, right? Mm-hmm. And and kind of being a collaborator to people who you will not meet in storytelling by game design. Sure. When you started getting introduced and started to kind of make connections in the tabletop, the indie t- tabletop space and the design creator space, did you kind of do so with an intent to create a game or to be to start making games? Or is it just, oh, hey, there are cool people making cool games. I'd like to know more about them. And then you kind of got swept up into the the (laughs) momentum because I I know that that has happened to a lot of people in a very cool way because when you're surrounded by passionate people making cool stuff, you're like, wait, I can do that too? Sick. I'm going to do that. It's infectious. Yeah, exactly. I think it was more of that. There was a part of me that I think was like, oh, it might be cool to make something at some point. But it wasn't really until I started chatting with other designers and got into a couple of Discord servers and was kind of more involved in the community that I really was like, hey, I actually do want to write something. It was more of the introduction first to the people in the space and to those conversations. The desire to design a game came later. Does tabletop game design 
Does that feel different for you in terms of making a thing versus, oh, yes, I'm writing my next novel or I'm writing an adventure for a game or I am insert kind of any more, quote unquote, classic Mm -hmm. writing project or whatever. What's kind of your experience with that feeling of I like writing, I like creating stuff and here's the outlet was this a kind of convenient outlet for you? And I don't mean that diminutively. Sure. I mean, in terms of here's a thing that is cool yeah. and and I'm interested in it. Or, what, or did it unlock something in you? Or kind of what was your own interaction with taking these creative urges mm-hmm. and pouring them into game design, which is a very specific kind of writing and content creation? I think part of it a little bit is because of the pandemic. I had just moved to a new place in the middle of the summer of 2020. It was a time of isolation. You can't do a lot of theater easily in (laughs) isolation. Nope. Honestly, as far as writing goes, I love the storytelling of writing, but I think a lot of writers too will agree that the act of writing is hard to do sometimes. I haven't really had the desire in a long time to write like a novel, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. But I still want to make stories. I really enjoyed games. Um, I really enjoyed RPGs. Game design was something that was, in a way, accessible to me during the pandemic. Sure. And something that I realized right away was such a combination of so many things that I enjoyed. Game design is not always like a solitary activity, right? Like a lot of Mm -hmm. game designers chat with each other and you can design games with all these collaborators. And I prefer it actually when it's not solitary, but it can be a solitary activity if you want it to be. You can sit down and just write out your own game. So you mentioned doing theater or lack thereof during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Is that something that you do do in normal times, in Uh uh, in the before times? Uh, Was that something you, you did regularly? Not regularly. It's something that I want to do more. I did musical theater lessons in like high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I was, I did some theater like freshman year of college, but I really haven't done much of it since then. Um, but that's one of the reasons why RPGs have been so nice because they've been a good outlet for that side of me. I actually really miss theater um, and I want to get involved in it again sometime. But yeah, I, not, I would not say I was doing it regularly, no. You just talked a little bit about about stories and about certainly providing framework through mm-hmm. rules, but also kind of telling your stories through games and and having that outlet both as a player, as a designer. And especially you are someone, and we I've heard you talk about it and I've seen it in your games, is your games are very concept forward and very kind mm-hmm. of vibe, story first, and then what mechanics do I need to kind of backfill and make this experience happen? Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of stories that are you're gravitated to, either as a storyteller or as a consumer? And have those changed as you've been going? You know, are there are there particular themes or types of stories or whatever that speak to you as as a creator? Honestly, a lot of my design concepts are kind of on a whim. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's uh, a lot of times I, I have an idea and that idea grabs me and it doesn't let go of me. Um, and then I end up designing a game around that idea. Um, and so, but those specific ideas, I don't even know if I can really put a good through line between them. Anamnesis is very different from Outliers, is very different from Six Figures Under. 
a lot of it is just dictated by what I think would be fun to make. Yeah. Something that is unique that I feel like I can provide. In the case of Outliers, I was able to provide my experiences of working as a research assistant. In terms of anamnesis, I was able to provide a new mechanic using tarot cards. So trying to kind of fill little niches, but also write things that I'm just particularly interested in mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think actually something that is a through line is I like players to really be able to control the story in meaningful ways, mm-hmm. which a lot of RPGs, that's a lot of part of the point. but. Games like Anamnesis really put a lot of the story into the player's hands. I think that it can be really interesting to create tools that help do that. In terms of what type of stuff I tend to consume, well, I'm a sucker for like enemies to lovers. Uh, (laughs) One of my favorite tropes. Yep, just blanket coverage. Yep. Obviously, it's so good. I've also been on a cosmic horror kick for a while, and I'm kind of exploring some design stuff with that. It's funny because like I don't watch horror movies and I don't play horror video games, but I will like read the synopses of horror movies and I it's will watch. It's one of my favorite things to do in the whole world. Yeah. Wikipedia articles <laughs> for horror movies. Absolutely, uh-huh. I'm a just sucker. I have read, I've consumed every horror movie that's been released, but via Wikipedia. So I'm with you. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by how horror is created. Like I'm fascinated by the stories of horror, but I have like zero tolerance for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like how I can get Same. that without actually being scared. Um, so I watch a lot of like horror video game let's plays because oh, it's not, I'm like yes. not directly in front of the screen. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I have found that podcasts, like horror podcasts are like how I can directly consume it because there's, I think it's the visuals. I think it's because there's not visuals. I can do the audio. Um, so I listen to a lot of horror podcasts because of that. Also, I really enjoy stuff that kind of breaks format. So mm-hmm stuff that's like kind of breaking the fourth wall or meta narratives. I recently learned a term. I was really excited to learn this because for a while I was like, what is this called? And then I stumbled across it. Um, I think it's ergodic literature is um, like a term that's used to describe books that don't follow the typical format that you would expect a book to follow. So House of Leaves, the raw shark texts, S, all of those are like ergodic literature. And I'm really into all of that. I haven't figured out how to like translate that to an RPG. That would be really interesting. But I really love stuff that tells stories in a way that is format breaking. Knowing enough of the capabilities of a format to bust out of them and and mm-hmm. explore it in the way that only can be done in the format, but going against all the rules of the format. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes. It's so much fun. It's just like refreshing in a way. So I'm I'm curious, is there anything in particular that you know when it pops into your head where it's like, ah, that's going to be a good game? Or is it just, hey, here's an idea and it, it won't let go. And so I need to just chase it down and maybe nothing will come of it. Mm-hmm. How often is the hit or miss ratio for cool vibe <laughs> ideas? And kind of what's your experience in navigating that, including times where it leads nowhere? I think most of the time it's more of an idea springs to mind and I'm like, I should play around with this. It's pretty rare that I have an idea and I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, this is a hit. This is for sure a hit. (laughs) That happens more so during the mechanics part of things. Mm, Yeah. So once I kind of have an idea for a game and I start playing around with the mechanics, often there's kind of an aha moment um, where it's like, oh, this is what this game needed. 
I have a list of just every game design idea that pops yeah. into my brain. And some of those are never going to go explored. Sure. <laughs> and some of those are probably will be explored, but like a couple of years down the road. I really try to make things that I am passionate about making and that I really want to see out in the world. And so I tend to do more exploration of the ideas that are immediately grabbing me in the moment. A lot of that initial exploration looks like writing random things down on paper, <laughs> you know, just yeah. like absolutely every idea about that thing, um, just spilling it out onto paper and just seeing what happens, um, seeing if anything is clicking. And usually something does, you know, there's a seed there that then you can build off of and explore more. My initial design process is very much, okay, I like this general concept. Now let's figure out everything that I like about this concept and see if there's some way to move forward with it. That's so interesting to me. As someone who is, you know, kind of the prototypical millennial brain of, well, obviously I have to do it right the first time. Oh, uh -huh. It has to be the greatest version of it as possible. And that sounds like not your approach. You know, you're just pouring ideas out and seeing what is interesting, see how what things connect, trying to find what works and what mm -hmm. doesn't. Being seemingly very chill with it, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Is that something that comes naturally to you? Or is that something that you have to practice? And what does it look like for you to have to marinate in ideas that you don't even know if they're good or bad yet, but also might be very bad or might be very good? <laughs> like, how, how do you explore that? And, and how did you build to that? I definitely used to be a perfectionist, for sure. Perfectionism isn't sustainable in RPGs. <laughs> it just isn't. Like it's it's not sustainable in most fields. I think I just realized that it really is a case of the more that you do it, the better you get at it, right? It, sure. It's the same. RPG design is the same as it is with writing, the same with podcasting, the same with acting. You know, the more that you practice it, the better you're going to get. So you might as well write things knowing that those things aren't necessarily going to be good and be okay with that. It feels good to have a finished product, even if that finished product isn't necessarily the best version that that thing could be. Yeah. You can always improve as a designer and then go back and improve old games. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. I've got a couple of older games that eventually I think I might go back to, knowing that as you improve, you can go back. But then at that point, you might not even care enough to go back. And that that Whoa. also says something about like how much that even matters, right? So um, I think that just over time, you kind of learn to let things lie you have to play to your strengths but your strengths aren't going to be everything and you have to recognize that and just know that you're growing for me when i'm doing my planning stages i really try hard to turn off the piece of my brain that's like that's a dumb idea don't write that down right like you're never going to do that <laughs> don't write that down anytime yeah. that i have that thought now I respond by writing it down. I'm like, if, yeah. <laughs> if I have the, if that little thought goes off in my brain, I'm like, that means I need to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> Here yeah. it goes on the paper. Take that. Yeah. It's not easy. It's something I think that 
if you are somebody who is a perfectionist, if you are somebody who really strives for everything that you do being the best that it can possibly be, it takes work. It, it honestly takes work to get away from that. Um, and obviously you still have things that, you know, you, of course I want my gifts to be as best as they can be. It's not that I don't, but I also have to recognize that I'm still learning. The worst thing that I can do is freeze. Like the worst thing that I can do is not move forward because I'm worried that something isn't going to be perfect. It's better for me to put out a product that's not perfect and move on to something for more practice than to be stuck at something for a while. You started by saying, hey, I read an indie tabletop role-playing game. I read Slayers, Mm -hmm. and that just unlocked a part of my brain. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And as someone who reviews so many tabletop role-playing games, or, or more talks about, I should mm-hmm. say, reviews. I don't know if is if is that, I don't think that is the right verb. Sure, yeah. But consumes and has thoughts about a lot of tabletop role-playing games. Sure. How do you go about building those instincts and building kind of your base of game design, of knowing you're growing and knowing that, hey, I'm trying to feed that part of my brain so that next time I design a game, I will have more ideas and more opinions and more ways to look at things to solve problems and and present opportunities. Is there something that has been important for you in that process or something that you would recommend other people try out uh, that you found helpful for your own growth? Something that I'm learning to do and something that a lot of other game designers will will say is, I mean, part of what you've just said with like reading a lot of games, um, it's always great to read games and get that inspiration from games and learn kind of what all is out there in terms of mechanics and style and tone, but also to to consume other media too to read books, to watch shows, to play games, because those influences can also unlock pieces in your game design brain as well. And then also to talk to other game designers. I've had a lot of like one-on-one chats with a ton of different designers and all of them have been so amazing. (laughs) Like it's so much fun to sit down with another game designer and really hear them talk about the process, really ask them about their games, really get into perspective on where they're coming from and where their ideas are coming from. Not only does it make you better as a designer to get all these other perspectives, but it also is very inspiring. That immediately also lit up uh, things in my brain around capturing a genre, capturing a vibe, or or having that kind of idea around either just something fun. Hey, this is a, this is a goofy thing. Can I turn uh-huh. it into a game? Or this is a mood I want to evoke. Do you start with that? Like, do you, do you kind of have it as a thesis statement as, hey, here's the vibe that I want? Actually, thesis statement is a really good way to describe mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good term to use. Yeah, that is pretty much how I design my games. Some designers will say that they start with a mechanic and they kind of build something around a mechanic that they like. That's usually not the case for me. Usually I have like a broad concept that I like. Then I dive into that concept and I figure out what mechanics support the concept and the tone that I am going for with the game. Largely speaking, those concepts tend to actually stay pretty similar. That thesis statement often doesn't get edited too much, Mm -hmm. even if like the tone might change a little bit or the themes that are explored within that thesis might change. That's actually a big one. 
For example, I'm working on a two-player game that is kind of inspired by fairy tales and mythology in which there's two people who know each other in some capacity. And one of them gets turned into an animal or some other creature. And the two have to like communicate and then figure out how to turn them back. Uh It wasn't my intention when I started writing it, but it ended up being a lot about communication and relationships, which was not what I was going for originally. So sometimes even if that thesis stays the same, even if the concept of the game stays the same, the themes that are explored change, um, which is something that is usually surprising to me. (laughs) Um, But then once you realize it, once you're like, oh, this is actually what I'm writing here. Um, And then you if when you embrace that, it feels really good, I think. If you choose to go in the direction that your brain is like trying to get you to flow down and um, if you really grab onto those themes that it's telling you to grab onto, it can bring you to some surprising and cool places. I have a ton of follow-up questions, but I think it might be might be useful, actually, to kind of continue exploring that through talking about at least uh, one of your games, Anamnesis. Sure. And just kind of talking about not just, hey, what's this game about? <laughs> and why, gotcha, why should people, yeah. I don't know, go check it out on your itch page uh, <laughs> and maybe go explore it. But, hey, can you just kind of tell people what the game is, but also what was the thesis that you started with? What was the idea you wanted to explore or the vibe or whatever? And then we can kind of talk through how it changed and became what it became. Well, Anamnesis is a single player game that uses a deck of tarot cards to tell a story about someone who's experiencing memory loss. So you play as this character who wakes up and doesn't remember where they are, doesn't remember who they are, And over the course of five acts, they gradually learn about their past and they also learn how to move forward with that past and kind of figure out who they are in the moment. In terms of the like thesis of the game, Anamnesis is one of those that uh, is actually very different (laughs) than the original concept. It seemed like a good example to explore. Yeah, for sure, for sure. The initial concept to what it became is probably the most different of like any other game I've worked on. So the initial idea that I had was a group game where you have character sheets and you have a GM who passes out the character sheets and the character sheets are blank, but the GM has them all filled in. And then you have to walk around town and talk to people and do things and slowly the players fill in their character sheet because oh, the GM... Cool. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I still think it has some... Absolutely. It's not a bad concept. Um, but it's not what anamnesis is. <laughs> it's not at all what anamnesis is. Um, and so at the time, I had... Every game that I'd worked on had been pretty pretty short pretty bite-sized pretty low effort honestly i mean like i put work into them but they were like shorter games you know they didn't take me a lot of time to make and anamnesis i was still getting the hang of like creating mechanics and i hadn't written a lot of games for groups and so balance was a thing that i was still struggling with Basically, ultimately, what happened was I thought that it would be more fun for me to write as a single player game. And then once I realized that, I was like, well, you know, maybe this doesn't actually need a character sheet, right? Maybe this person can just be like figuring out about themselves. And maybe like, how do you do a character sheet in this situation? I guess there's ways, right? And then it ended up being like, okay, well, what mechanics do I use for this? Because I wanted to keep it relatively mechanically light. 
And I wanted to only have one material that you used to play. So only dice, only deck of cards, um, something like that. And eventually I settled on tarot cards because of the imagery of tarot. Um, yeah. And it seemed to fit the themes really well, which I mean, I guess at the time I was still kind of messing around with the themes, but it, it fit the mood that I was going for. And it became anamnesis. And I, it's, <laughs> it is, it was very unexpected. But that was definitely a moment where like once I kind of got into my flow with anamnesis and once I figured out what it was and how it worked, I was like, oh, this one actually is good. <laughs> so I think I maybe <laughs> actually should like get a layout artist for this and like really try to do more with this because I actually really think that this could be something. It really became a game about introspection, about finding yourself about self-discovery and moving forward. Um, and that wasn't always the case at the beginning of the game, but those concepts definitely lodged themselves in and stuck fairly early on. So for this game in particular, I, I guess I'll just kind of start with, it's a short thing. Sure. I think what, like 14, 15 something pages? Yeah, it's not much. Once you take out the covers, especially. Yeah. 22, including a couple of the like intros and whatevers, mm -hmm. but it, it's a short little packet, but packs a lot of flavor in and packs a lot of mood and and invitations for introspection and vulnerability and creativity, I think. How did you approach winnowing that down and saying, hey, obviously there's a lot of questions involved as part of the exploration, which can communicate some of that, but it is very efficient in, hey, here's the mood, here's the mm -hmm. vibes, here's what the play experience might feel like for you, um, and captures that, I think, very well in, again, just a handful of pages. So as you were putting it together, and as you are putting together other games since then, how do you go about communicating, here's what it, I want it to feel like for you, and, and trying to communicate that to a player, or for other games, uh, for someone running the game, or whatever, to make sure that you give people the resources that they need to kind of capture the play experience that, that you're looking to provide for them. Having kind of a little quip at the beginning of the game can really mm -hmm. help. Whether that is more of a in-game quip, like a little, almost like a little narrative sure. paragraph. Um, Anonesis doesn't have this, but <laughs> like something like that. You know, I was literally looking, I was flipping up on my because like, what was it? Uh, this is the definition? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah, I guess the definition kind of serves that purpose in mm -hmm. a way because it's uh, it it tells you the definition of anamnesis and that kind of immediately sets you up for what the game is kind of about. Honestly, I think that... Writing a what is this game section yeah. is super, I mean, most mm -hmm. games have it. It's a really straightforward way of setting tone and just stating like, hey, this game explores these themes. This game is about this. It's hard to like fully set tone with that, but it's a good starting off point of yeah. creating expectations. In terms of anamnesis, a lot of the tone comes through the questions. Um, so a lot of it is the phrasing of the questions and the open-endedness of kind of what the questions are looking for. Some of the questions are in a way leading, like they are sure. intending to get at specific aspects of this person's background, this person's personality, but put a lot of control into the player's hands on what they want to answer with those questions. Um, but the questions are to the point in a way, and they offer very open-ended answers. Because Outliers was just released, 
Outliers also has a lot of prompts in the same way that Anamnesis does. Every card has a different prompt. But those questions and those prompts are wildly different because the whole tone of the game is different. (laughs) Very different tonally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anamnesis is very setting agnostic and even genre agnostic. Yeah, I get that. So the questions are kind of vague in some ways. But that vagueness also elevates the tone of the game where you're playing as somebody who doesn't know who they are um, and you're learning and things are confusing and maybe scary. That really stood out to me in Anamnesis as someone who asks uh, people a lot of questions. They were very good questions. (laughs) Thank you. And very, like you said, very evocative and leading in the right ways Mm -hmm. and kind of inviting people to collaborate, kind of like, like you started off talking. How did you go about achieving that? Uh, Again, not just with Anamnesis, but also with your other games, especially for your solo games where it is very, you know, prompt driven or or whatever. Is there a kind of mindset or a goal or or north north star that you kind of kept an eye on as you were figuring out how to structure the questions and structure your games to kind of uh, elicit that play experience and set that tone and mood of exploration and vulnerability. With Anamnesis, I really wanted questions that were extremely open-ended that Hmm. could be put into any setting, any character and still be relevant. With Outliers, I wanted stuff that was like really weird and really funny. Mm -hmm. I had certain core design decisions that went into those questions too. Something that was similar across both games though is that the prompts were inspired by my own experiences and my own surroundings. So with Anamnesis, for example, um, when I was writing those prompts, I really tried to take a look at my surroundings when I was writing. There's one act in Anamnesis where you're walking around your home. And so in order to make those prompts, I walked around my home and I like tried to make note of things. I was like, hey, I have all these sticky notes in my desk. What if there's something about a note? I was like, hey, you know, I've got these books on my bookshelves. What if there's like a book that catches your eye? Same with the other acts too. Uh, I think that the first act has to do with when you first wake up and you're kind of taking stock of your immediate surroundings, but also of yourself. And so I, I think I literally did just like lay down <laughs> and close yeah, my eyes and was totally. like just thinking about it and thinking about what do you if I if I open my eyes and I look at myself like what is what are you going to see like what is the stuff that you would take stock of? There's I think a prompt about tattoos. There's a prompt about the clothes that you're wearing. There's a prompt about how you feel about your voice when you speak for the first time. So all of these things, like little things that can tell you a lot about a person, but that you are exploring about yourself when you first wake up. Outliers was directly inspired by my time as a research assistant. And so the prompts in that game are all things that I've done as a research assistant. Um, So that one was just like, I just basically took my job. I literally, at one point, (laughs) I opened up my resume (laughs) and I was like looking through my resume. Like what, what have I said that I've done in like other labs before? And like used, yeah, obviously I made it really weird for outliers. (laughs) You know, I, I put that like absurdist comedy in there, but the baseline of it was all like stuff that I've done. I was really reflecting on my own experiences in my job looking at old documents and open like looking through the resume and really thinking through what my like responsibilities are at work and what I tend to spend a lot of my time on and then created questions based on those things. So um, definitely different 
experiences, different influences for those games, but ultimately at their core, they were still inspired by my own experiences and my surroundings. I want to actually talk specifically a little bit more about Outliers, but before I fully move there, something that I really loved, just a small thing about Anamnesis, was the ending of the game. Mm. It's a game about discovering who you are. It's very reactive, right? Um, And very just observe, what do you see? What happens? What comes up? The last page, it really like I can picture it in my brain because it was it was so nice and striking, was essentially just saying, do not draw from the deck about what happens to your character next or where they're where they're moving because you are in charge of your own identity at the end. Mm-hmm. After all of this kind of exploration discovery, it was basically saying, now you get the power. You don't draw from the deck. You choose your own card. Mm-hmm. What happens next? What what do you learn about yourself in this moment? That really struck me as such a fun turn on what the game was about. And I think added so much depth and richness with just one tiny prompt and one page of, uh, of 22 pages. Thanks. Why was that important to include in the game that is both very in the genre, but also very not in the genre of what this game is about? I knew that I wanted the last act to be about how you move forward, what you do in the future. Um, But the exact nature of that, I wasn't quite sure about. I knew that I wanted it to have to do with the major arcana because the previous four acts all dealt with a specific suit of the minor arcana. So that leaves act five to be major arcana focused. But I, it wasn't until later that I figured out what I wanted to do with it. It was really important for me that the game ended up giving you the power in the end and the game ended up being about making your own path and forging your own identity because I I believe that people can change and I believe that people can grow. Anamnesis is really a game about confronting your past and then figuring out what to do about it, <laughs> figuring out how to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that your past goes away. It doesn't mean that you don't carry that with you, but you still are the person who's putting one foot in front of the other and you're still the person who is choosing the direction to walk in even if you're carrying that on your back. Up till that point, kind of as you're talking about all the questions you you draw from the deck. So you're not really in charge of what cards you're getting. You're pulling the cards and those cards are telling you what those prompts are. But the very end was really about giving that character the power, giving that character the ability to say, this is who I am. So that really ended up, in a way, becoming the thesis of Anamnesis. Mm -hmm. So, not to pivot too hard, but outliers. (laughs) (laughs) It is a a strong pivot, yeah. (laughs) It is, yeah. Well, you know, again, it's one of those where it's like I at least set it up, and like I will be asking about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. After this, but is hot off the presses as of as of the recording of this interview, uh, and still will be by the time the episode comes out. Uh, Go check it out. It's another, you know, quote unquote, another solo TTRPG, question driven, like you said, but also very drastically different. (laughs) (laughs) And A, could you just give a little summary again of what the game actually is before we kind of jump in to give everyone context uh, about what the, the, the the vibe is? Outliers is a single player game about being a research assistant in a lab that is very abnormal. (laughs) It's a game of absurdist comedy and surrealism. It's definitely meant to be primarily a game of humor. 
the questions are very wild and wacky, and overall, it's pretty lighthearted. It is also a Wretched and Alone game, so it is based on the system that Chris Bissett created in The Wretched. I modified things a little bit, but not a lot, to be honest. It sticks pretty close to the original concept of The Wretched, um, but very different in tone. Yeah, I was going to say, in case uh, for those listeners uh, who may not know about that particular game system, really just Wretched and Alone Uh tells you a good amount about the tone of what is contained therein. So it's very very funny (laughs) that that is not necessarily the vibe of your game. Mm Outliers really came from my desire to create a game that was based on my own experiences as a research assistant. I have worked in, I guess, technically four different labs, if you include kind of my time in undergrad and working in labs there. Despite working in different labs, every lab is different, but a lot of the kind of core um, Mm. skills of a research assistant and a lot of the core things that you're working on stay somewhat the same. Um, There's a lot of scheduling, a lot of talking to people, a lot of running the study. You know, people put so much of themselves into their work, and it's always really cool to see games that are personal, to see games that are an insight into somebody's background, an insight into somebody's career. I wanted to try to do that myself, and that was how Outliers came to be, um, because I felt like I kind of had the unique experience of, of being a research assistant. This game was a way that I could show people what that was like in a really comedic way. Yeah, right. And, and I think you, you describe it as a little bit Gravity Falls, a little bit, uh, what was the other one? Oh, there's something else. Oh, what was the other? Welcome to Night Vale. Yes, and Welcome yeah. to Night Vale as like t- tone setting, which immediately is like, ah, I understand. I, yes. get, I get what this is. <laughs> that also really stood out to me in terms of the putting yourself in your game. Mm-hmm. That includes with Anamnesis, where you were literally laying down and being yeah. like, what do I notice <laughs> in my life? What do I, what am I thinking about myself? Mm-hmm. What am I exploring about myself? How do I feel about my voice when I wake up in you know sure. in the morning or whatever? Is that something that is easy for you? While dramatically and academically interesting of like, ah, I see this in other games. That seems good. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Was it practically, <laughs> you know, accessible and easy for you um, as you were going through your games and trying to put more of yourself and your experience in them? Uh, It was not, honestly, very easy for me. (laughs) Outliers was born from the desire to want to do that. And I hadn't tried. I mean, I think think Anamnesis does have parts of me in it, for sure. And and naturally, it's going to because it was inspired by my surroundings. Um, But I hadn't really made an effort to put a lot of myself, my history, my own personal experiences into a game before. And I really wanted to do that. And I was really thinking about ways to do that, um, specifically with how to take my experiences as a research assistant and making it into a game that's interesting without actually falling into like a lot of the tropes of research in fiction. I do love a good research trope (laughs) in fiction. Don't (laughs) get me wrong. I thought it would be really refreshing and interesting to create a game that gives a little bit more of a ironically, like a little bit more of a realistic point of view, even though Outliers itself is not realistic at all. (laughs) Um, But the thing with Outliers is that once you strip away a lot of the absurdism, what you're left with is a pretty accurate representation of a research assistant. 
you know, you are scheduling participants, you're going over a consent form with participants, you are <laughs> entering data into a computer. <laughs> yeah. The basics of all of those prompts, the actions that the research assistant is doing in those prompts, those are all based on my own reality of what I have done in my previous jobs. Outliers ended up being the way for me to explore that. But it took a little bit to get there. It definitely took some thinking about what exactly I wanted to portray and how to portray it. It leads me to kind of think a little bit about creating stuff for public consumption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just a generally, but also when you are putting yourself in a game and putting your experiences and putting your thoughts, your design ideas and ideals out there and knowing that people play it and hearing it on actual play podcasts and yeah. shows that pop up, uh, including uh, several friends of the show, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what is kind of your relationship, not just with creating a thing and ha having it be done and cool, I look, I created a thing, but then have people interact with it mm -hmm. and know that you are being perceived <laughs> and know that they're there is more art being spawned from your art. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of enjoy it. Sure. It feels really good as a designer to know that people are playing your games. There's a lot of times where you publish. I mean, I've published games before that I don't know that anybody's played them. It really genuinely feels great as a creator, as a designer, to know that people are engaging with the work in a meaningful way. Anonesis did a lot better than I thought it was going to do. Um, <laughs> it got more traction than I was expecting it to. It really was very motivating in some ways and very inspiring sure. in a lot of, of ways course. to see what stories people were making and to hear people's experiences with it. You know, people used it as a tool in ways that I also wasn't expecting people yeah. to use it. I love when people branch off of something that I've made. Yeah. Just knowing that you're inspiring something, that you're inspiring someone feels great. And I love it when people make hacks of games. And I think that most designers will say the same thing. You know, people really enjoy it when somebody designs a work that is inspired by their own work because they know that they made something that meant something to someone. Sure. And it's a great feeling. I've been pretty blown away by the reception of Anamnesis. I've gotten more used to being perceived. Sure. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really bother me or I'll say, I don't think I would do it. But right. like yeah. between everything with TikTok, it's just something mm -hmm. that I'm slowly kind of getting more adjusted to. But it's really fun to be able to engage with the community and be able to share work in that way. And like being perceived is kind of the best way to do that sure. <laughs> in yep. some ways. True. Honestly, it's all been really enjoyable and inspiring. I don't even know if there's a question attached to this. I think I'm just <laughs> stating out loud that I know several game designers who say specifically they have been inspired by your stuff oh. to make their own games. And again, I don't think I even have a question because I think it just builds off of the answer you just said. I would be remiss in not at least mentioning that it is having uh, effects not just on people play this and are making their own thing out of it, mm -hmm. but specifically saw your stuff and said, hey, that's awesome. I'd like to do that. I should do some something along those lines mm -hmm. uh, and going from there. So felt worth mentioning, I should say. Before we move uh, into the back into the big picture, uh, you know, kind of exploration of self mm -hmm. portions of the interview, I want to be sure to talk about uh, another one of your projects that has not dropped yet, but has been teased, announced sure, yeah. somewhere in that kind of ephemera, depending uh -huh. on, on how things go the next couple of weeks. 
you very casually a little while ago <laughs> on social media mentioned that you were had developed, I think, a tabletop role playing game in conjunction with a with like a a ballet company. Is that am I expressing this? very wild cool thing appropriately (laughs) yeah um yes it's uh it's this organization called the ballet collective essentially there's these choreographers that are part of the ballet collective and they invite composers and what they call source artists to all get together and create something The source artist, which could be a writer, a poet, a sculptor, any sort of art, creates a piece that then the composer composes a piece using the source artist's work as inspiration. And then the choreographer then creates a dance using the composer's piece. Essentially, that's kind of a big thing that the Ballet Collective does. So they have the the three people who are working together to create this. And I was reached out to by them to create an RPG for them that they're going to be using to create a show. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's still uh, wild. It's still wild. Um, They originally approached me about this back in January, and I'm still kind of like processing the game has been (laughs) written and i'm still processing right yeah i mean it was really cool it's i think the show is going to have two different groups essentially so there's going to be the show that's uh that was inspired by my game and then there's going to be the one that was inspired by somebody else's art which she does this like really amazing work with flowers it's really cool the piece itself the dance is probably going to be between like 20 to 30 minutes for each of them so yeah and and that's wow. the show uh so I, it's it's very <laughs> exciting it. it's that easy peasy yeah yeah well <laughs> yeah it's very um it, it's it's also kind of wild because like i mean i kind of make the piece and you know i I, yeah. ch- I chat with the with the choreographer and the composer about it a little bit but like once the piece is made it's it's mostly out of my hands you know it's yeah. mostly like they kind of do their thing afterwards yeah. so You've passed the baton. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to see what they come up with. I cannot wait. It's all very exciting, very new, really wild, really wild. Craziest email I've ever gotten, for sure. (laughs) Everyone, check your emails right right now, just in case. Just do it. What was the missive that you were given? Um, Mm. You know, obviously just approached of like, hey, by the way, here's what we do. We make ballets from art. Do you want to do an art for us, basically? Yeah. Practically speaking, that is such a, a foreign alien idea make a game that gets turned into music that gets turned into ballet yes how do you start doing that (laughs) right there's no manual there's no one you can there's no elder game designer Uh who you can be like hey i know you've done this before right yeah so how did that process not just start with the conversations Mm -hmm. but start in terms of what were you trying to achieve and what were you kind of designing around as you kind of kick-started this very wild, very <laughs> very strange, very cool opportunity. It, it really was all, it was all a conversation with Fong, the composer, and Troy, the choreographer. We met a bunch of times over Zoom. We discussed what it was that we wanted out of this. Fong had a lot of experiences playing role-playing games before, and Troy didn't have any experiences with role-playing games before. So it was very much like a, we were all in yeah. different levels of what we understood about RPGs cool. and what we were looking for out of this game. And so we had a lot of conversations, and overall the design definitely went in very different directions along those conversations. So it started off as being something where 
maybe there would be terms that are frequent terms in music composition and in dance that they can then grab onto within that game and then use those terms to make music or a dance that uses that terminology. Um, And then it went away from that. (laughs) And then, um, and so it definitely, um, there were a lot of iterations, a lot of ideas tossed around, but ultimately what we kind of all decided on the stuff that Troy and Fong were particularly interested in was like a two player game that they could play together. Oh yeah. That had some sort of artifact of play, so something after it's completed that is tangible in some sort of way. Also, Fong was really interested in having some level of abstraction. You're kind of going between the abstract to like defining those things. And so what resulted in all of that, you know, so I kind of took those different pieces and I was I was already is like a mess in my brain. An interesting (laughs) mess, but a mess. And I was like, I oh cool. Those are all words that I recognize. And now I make a game of it. Okay, cool. Well that's why that's why Sam is a game designer and Nathan is not. (laughs) It wasn't like a oh yeah, I know exactly what to do with these things. It was definitely it took, you know, it took some time, it took some some thoughts. Uh definitely a lot of brainstorming. The game is called The World We Left Behind. It will have a public release, but that's going to be, I think, near the end of this year. It is a game where you are exploring a planet. You are learning why this planet is no longer inhabited. So you're kind of exploring the ruins, in a way, of the people who used to be here. And you're learning more about the planet itself. You're learning more about the history of the place. Ultimately, at the end, you're solving the question of what happened here. It's partially inspired by Carta by Peach Garden Games. Basically, they made this SRD that you have these playing cards that are laid out in front of you um, and you use them as a map. So you move kind of your token between the cards and then each card is a prompt. Um, And it doesn't function the same way, but it definitely is inspired by it. So you have this map of cards that is like the surface of the planet. And each card that you land on is a different feature of the planet. So you'll turn over a card, and then when you turn over that card, you draw a symbol on it. And that's kind of where the abstraction comes from. So you draw a symbol on the card, and then the other player interprets that symbol, and they create this feature that's inspired by that symbol. In the end, you have the abstraction from the symbols and the defining of those symbols, and then you have the artifact of play, which is this deck of cards afterwards that has these symbols and this writing on it. That was the result of essentially all of these kind of different features that they were interested in exploring. I'm really excited about it. I think it's one of the better games that I've made. Mm -hmm. I want to refine it a little bit. I'm um, working on getting cover art for it, which I'm really excited about. I play tested it with a friend of mine and we told a story with it that was really unexpected in some really cool ways. And so I'm excited to get it out into the world. And I'm also really excited to see what Fong and Troy come up with because I have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like. <laughs> do you like, do you even know at this point, like, have they played it? And do you have insight on like what happened with it? Or is it just like, cool, we played it. It went well. There is going to be a ballet from this. <laughs> <laughs> I only know a little bit. So they have played it and they sent me like a couple of pictures of their, oh, cool. of their board, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I got like some little pieces of it, but we haven't like sat down and been like, hey, Hey, here's what our game was about. And I think part of that is just because everybody's been really, really busy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Eventually we'll we'll chat through it. Yeah, I'm excited to to see what happens. I had one last kind of question specifically about uh that game and about outliers. Something that was interesting to me is that your ballet game obviously is kind of working with a ballet collective where it mm-hmm. is artists sharing art and all collaborating and kind of all being part of it together. 
Outliers was also published as part of a like a co-op. Yes. That to me is very different than what I see a lot of people in the indie TTRPG space. Certainly there are publishers and also a ton of people who are just releasing their games, who are crowdfunding them or are just putting them up on itch or kind of going from there. Is that something that is important to you or something that was particularly appealing to you as being part of these short sort of collective experiences and these sort of collective supportive business arrangements? I don't know. It's gross. <laughs> Capitalism is gross, but yeah, you get what I we mean. Can agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get it, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really important to me. I do my best creative work when I'm creating with other people, like flat out, full stop. Ever since college, uh, when I, I met a couple of friends who we just really creatively bounced off of each other so well, um, as soon as I got a taste of that, I was like, oh, I'm never going back. <laughs> you know, It's the sure. best feeling in the world when you're like on the same wavelength in a creative sense, but then you're each bringing your own ideas to it. And it just, for me at least, it's always going to be better with somebody else than by myself. I care a lot about collaboration with creative work. I care a lot about different mediums of creative work, inspiring and lifting up each other. Yeah. You know, Anamnesis and Outliers both have teams of people behind them, incredible people. And uh, the games would not be nearly as good without them. Uh, it, it's I, I'm I'm a, I'm a fraction of the work uh, <laughs> that went into those. Yeah, the art, the layout, the editing, all of it is so important to lift up the tone of the game. You know, you were kind of talking about the tone of Anamnesis earlier. It wouldn't be the same if it didn't have the art and the layout that it did. It wouldn't come across as well. It all lifts each other up. Um, when you put it all together. In terms of outliers, Mark Shepard had reached out to me asking if I wanted to be the first creator in residence with the Far Horizons co-op. I was familiar with the co-op's work at that point, And I I said yes, because that was really exciting to me. I'm yeah. like, and I, I <laughs> wanted to see cool what it was like too. I had never been part of a co-op before. I really wanted to learn more about how it works. I loved it. I thought it was great. I think that the way that they approach things is awesome. I also ended up working with a team of people who I, like some some people I had never talked to before. Mark Shepard did the proofreading. Jay Boone Dryden did the editing. James Hanna did the layout. And Carly AF did the art. I had worked with Marks before. Marks was the editor for Anamnesis, but I had never worked with the others before. And it was one of those situations where I don't know if I would have ended up working with them if I mm-hmm. hadn't kind of been thrown sure. in with them with the co-op because I, I just wasn't familiar with their work at that point. I pitched the idea of outliers and Marx was like, cool, who wants to sign up? And so people signed up, right? And then we all like collaborated and worked together and they were just incredible. The team was amazing. And it really just like put me into a perspective where I was able to work with some amazing people and be really creatively inspired by them. And I probably would not have worked with them if I wasn't in that situation. It really goes to show like how much those collaborations matter and how meaningful it can be to work with people who are outside of your circle, who are outside of your background. Getting those different perspectives and meeting new people is just such a delight in this space. I really want to do more of it in the future. That type of collaboration is really important to me, and I think it's always going to make a game better. Something that I think is really cool and I always admire in creators is creating stuff to uplift the work of other people. 
that is something that you do very well and very prolifically over on TikTok <laughs> when, when you are going through, you know, kind of in spotlighting games, whether it is, hey, here's a list of games that fit this vibe, or I picked up this game today and I like it, or so, you know, any, any, any number of ways that you're kind of engaging with these things that are not your work, that aren't even necessarily work of people that you know, you just pick it up and say, hey, this is a cool game. I want to talk about this game. What drove you to not just be consuming games and thinking critically about them, learning from them, but to then start spotlighting them and start interacting with them in that public manner? A lot of it was because of conversations I'd seen in the space about how to advertise work and which platforms people were using. There definitely is a community on TikTok that discusses indie RPGs, but it's overall, in the scheme of things, a, a relatively small community. At some point, I caved and I downloaded TikTok and I had it for about a week. And then I was like, hey, I'm not seeing a lot of indie RPG stuff on here. You know, it, there there is stuff on there, but overall, it's a relatively small community. But then I'm also, I'm seeing a lot of D&D stuff on here. I'm seeing a ton of people making D&D content on TikTok. It just felt like it was a really good platform to use in order to spread word about indie games. And it turns out there's a lot of people who are really interested in indie <laughs> games on TikTok. Yeah. My ultimate goal for making these videos is to spread word about the indie TTRPG scene, like full stop, and to support designers um, to kind of give back to the community. I said full stop and then I kept going, but there you, <laughs> there you are. Um, but yeah. like that, that's the, the main purpose. I kind of approach the channel as like an invitation to learn more about these games and to play these games rather than like a, hey, you, you shouldn't play D&D. You should play these other games instead. Right. Um, yes. To me, it's like a, hey, here's this really cool thing. For Let me sure. show you this cool thing so we can be yes. excited about it together. That's kind of my mindset going into that. That's the framework that I use. I think that it has uh, resonated with people. It's been really cool seeing people comment being like, hey, I didn't know that solo RPGs existed. Um, that's yeah. like, that's the whole point. That's the whole reason is just to make people aware that there's this whole world of games out there. How do you go about exploring games, uh, let alone choosing which ones to kind of feature? Again, is there kind of a, again, a thesis, a North Star of something of like, hey, these are the kind of games or the kind of experiences that I want to put forth when I'm talking about them on TikTok and on my platforms? Um, you know, kind of what's the, the design of the show and how do you find the games to go on them? My two primary like guide points for choosing games are um, I try to choose games that people aren't talking about a lot. Um, and I also try to choose games that are designed by people from marginalized groups. Not every game that I review falls into those two guide points, but the majority of them do. And I, I try to achieve that with the majority of them. As far as like which, like how to seek out these games, a lot of people come to me. Yeah. I've gotten quite a few emails and um, I have like a form now that I direct people to, which uh, yeah. makes things way easier. Oh my gosh. It's like, <laughs> yep. because it's like, I, I don't want to forget about this. And if I have this form, it's like a compilation of everybody who's interested. So I can like look through that and be like, Hey, this is, this is a designer whose work I really want to feature, or this is a particular work that I'm really interested in. Like, let's look at that. But other than that, like I do, I have, I mean, I have a lot of games that I haven't read <laughs> and it's like a great way for me to get myself to read these games that are sitting on my shelf. 
and to, to pick them up and to make a video about them. It's a mixture of stuff that I already have and other people approaching me about stuff. Um, but also, you know, there there's sometimes... Uh, more so for like the like compilation videos, which are kind of like if I if I make a list of, you know, here's a bunch of solo RPGs, then I might go to Itch.io and I might kind of look for certain RPGs that fit into the categories that I'm looking at. Yeah, sure. Most of it is stuff that I I have like conversations with the designers about. So they'll reach out to me and we'll we'll talk about it and I'll I'll, you know, let them know that I'm interested in it. I try to work with them a little bit in terms of like, hey, let's make sure that there are copies of your game available at the time that this is released. I've had backlogs of games before and then it'll be like a few months later and I'm like, hey, I just want to check in. Do, are there still copies available? And they'll be like, oh no, but we, there will be in like two months. I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, let, we'll do it then. So yeah, change the schedule. Got, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't feature any games that have AI art in them. I don't feature games that have misogyny in them. These certain rules that I have set for the channel, I make sure that I read everything pretty thoroughly ahead of time to ensure that it is appropriate for the channel and that it falls within these rules. And I work with designers on those as well. And it's really introduced me to a lot of new work and it's introduced me to a lot of new designers and it's connected with people and it's been a great time. That's really cool. And I am similarly just pausing to acknowledge that it is cool as hell that you making videos necessitates designers needing more copies of their game <laughs> like i hope i hope that that is not lost on you as a needle mover like that is cool as hell Thank that you. you're like hey just so you know if i make this video people might want to come by it so make sure that it is ready mm -hmm. um that's an amazing thing and and is like a a measurable difference made that i think is very wonderful and i hope is something that you you also appreciate about the things that you're doing thanks yeah the last question that i had and i was going to call it a quick question but that's up to you about how quick it is <laughs> for a lot of people there are, are parts of making things, doing art that are great, right? The reason that you do it, the, oh, hey, not just that I have this product out, but I love, I love noodling on these things. I like fitting mechanics together. I like performing, but also there are presumably for everyone parts that, that really suck, that are just <laughs> not fun or are really hard or uh -huh. are just like, I'm not feeling inspired by this. This is the hard part. I'm not energized by this part of it, even mm -hmm. if I know I need it. As someone who, who is putting games out and has more on the horizon, I was just curious to get your perspective on not just personally what is easy and fun for you and what is hard for you, but how do you go about getting through the hard parts? Mm. How do you look at a thing and say, I know that I need to do this. I know I need to figure out this little fiddly mechanic or I need to write the ending or I need to do this. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that, either muscling through or sidestepping or, or whatever, whatever it is that you do? It's changed over time, depending on what that thing is. If it's, if it's fiddling with a mechanic or if it's like, I really want to make sure that I can get a working concept of this, but I'm not really feeling that inspired by it right now. Yeah. I've started setting timers more than I used to. Love that. 30 minutes. You can focus on it for 30 minutes. Oh, <laughs> uh -huh. if I'm feeling really uninspired, I set it to 15 minutes. Like yeah. literally just because oh, yeah. it's just a tiny fraction of time. And it's 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 so little time. And you're like just 15 <laughs> minutes of this and and then it's done. And then you don't have and then you can put it away for at least, you know, some amount of time. The hard part is just doing it, right? And so and a lot of times it's the start of doing it. 
for me, if I set even the smallest amount of time, sometimes I will find that by the end of that 15 minutes, I'm now in it. I'm in the zone, right? Not all the time, but sometimes. It doesn't always work, right? Sometimes I cheat, right? <laughs> like it's it's difficult. <laughs> yep. For certain aspects too, um, this is less about the design stuff, but just kind of kind of more the business stuff. Emails and messages are something that oh, yep. take like a lot of time. <laughs> and, yeah, you're nodding. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, I yeah. just silent resignation and, uh-huh. and acknowledgement and looking across a webcam as yes. if looking at a mirror. Yes, yes. <laughs> For me, I've definitely found that. I've recently learned, I should say, that it is better for me to carve out time every other day, every third day, you know, something like that, um, to to actually like write it in my planner, like you're going to respond to all the messages today. Yep. Today is the day. Today is the day. Yeah. And so that's usually like a a couple times a week, you know, two or three times a week. And so, you know, some messages I'm replying to as they're coming in, but there's other ones that sit and I'm like, I don't need to respond to this email right away. So it's going to, I'm going to respond to it during the email day. (laughs) Um, and I found that that works a lot better for my brain. Um, wherein if I'm like, okay, now's the message time, then I can really like sit down and get into the zone of sending sure, messages definitely. and get into that like frame of mind rather than just trying to do them one at a time as they're coming in. It's a lot harder for me to like get motivated to do that and to get started on it. Once I'm in it, then it is easier to just get them all done. So kind of not trying to do the hard stuff every day. Um, yes, or like totally. Not, yeah. Setting aside some time to block out to work on those things as a group where you can kind of get into the zone of it. It's tremendously helpful, I think, and, yeah. and useful. Mm-hmm. But I have bad news. So. <laughs> yes, Nathan. And I, I hate to do this. We've had such a nice conversation. <laughs> and not because I don't want it to transition to any sort of ending, mm-hmm. which I don't, of course. I'm having a nice time. I would talk to you gladly for, for infinite more time. <laughs> But also because I have to ask a um, great trial of you. What is this trial? Because it is time for the Reckless Atalk lightning round. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm ready. Let's go. As you may or may not know, and for any new listeners out there, we ask the same questions right at the end of all our interviews to all of our guests in the same order. There are no wrong answers. The only right answers are the ones that you give. Um, I guess don't lie because that's just lame. Um, But otherwise, (laughs) it can be as short as you want. It can be one word. It can be a long 10-minute diatribe lecture kind of thing. (laughs) Or you could just say, you know, "Hmm, long pause, long pause. No, I don't have a good answer for that. All legitimate. Already been expressed. All are welcomed uh, with silent affirmation from me. I will do my best to shut up and let you answer. (laughs) Love it. And at the end... You may, if you survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This trial, yes. We'll get some some rewards out of it. But <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Sam, are you ready for the Reckless to Talk lightning round? I'm ready. I'm prepared. Excellent. Yes. Oh, well, that's what they all say. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, first question. Mm-hmm. Is your glass half full or half empty? I would like to say half full on most days. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Definitely my friends and and specifically like those friends that I was talking about who we just bounce off of each other creatively in such amazing ways. They are a huge source of inspiration in my life, a huge source of creative fulfillment in my life. And making things with them is always refreshing and creatively fulfilling. Also, really good high energy music. 
Real, just bops. <laughs> real good bops. Uh, a Good Song Never Dies by Saint Motel is a go-to. Yes, absolutely. Check the show notes. We'll put a link in there. <laughs> what does not excite you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Being stuck in the same routine. Some routine is good, but if I'm really on loop for too long, it doesn't get so good. <laughs> also, staying in my apartment. I have to, I can't do that. I can't be here for too long. It's an, it's, I, I like the space. It's a good space. But if I'm here like a full weekend, if I don't go outside, I, it does, it's not good for me. <laughs> so I do a lot of like going to libraries and things and just, just, you know, even if I need to do the work, I try to go and do it somewhere else if I can. What is your favorite sound? Very, very good harmonization like acapella mm. harmonization is so it's the stuff that makes your brain buzz mm -hmm. is just always the best also i was listening i've been listening to this music there's a song called black cap chickadee by dj cutman and bird boy and it's basically like they basically took the sounds like the chirping of a black cap chickadee and they made it into like a bop um oh. <laughs> and now, every time I hear a bird that sounds like, I don't know if, it, I don't, I'm not a bird person. I don't know anything. I can't identify birds. I can't identify bird sounds. But anytime I hear something that sounds like a black cap chickadee, I love it. I get so excited about it. I'm like, yeah, there it is. <laughs> the song's about to start. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Without a doubt, high list, metal chairs screeching on floors. Ooh. I can't, you know, I can do basically anything else. I will, I will physically flinch at that noise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I get that. What is your favorite word? This is not a real word, but a, a while ago, my friend and I, he was like, hey, you know, I've got to go uh, BRB, but he didn't say BRB. He accidentally typed BEB, <laughs> Beb. And, uh, and we're like, Beb. And now it's just the word we use. We're like, hey, I got to go Beb. I'll be, <laughs> be back, Beb. So Beb is, is my favorite word. What is your least favorite word? Panties, without a doubt. Hands down. Hands down. I know you've gotten that one before, too. It's the worst one. Yep. Yep. It's always really delights me when people have the same least favorite uh -huh. words and like not even like favorite sounds or whatever is totally great or favorite words. But when they have the least favorite words come up multiple times, it like it really makes my heart glow for some weird reason. <laughs> it just makes me happy if like, ah, we That's humans mutual. are united yeah. <laughs> in our distaste for the word panties. Yes, Got it. Hell yeah. Awful. Yep. What tabletop role-playing game monster or antagonist, uh, interpret that as you will, have you not faced or run that you would love to? Strahd. That, definitely Strahd. I, I don't really play much D&D &D anymore, but if somebody ran Curse of Strahd, I would be there. That would be the thing <laughs> that pulls me back. Because I've, that, yep, that, that's the one. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And it can be a tabletop one. It could be one you ran, one you wrote, one you witnessed, one you watched, or it could be 1999's The Mummy, whatever that <laughs> means to you. Oh, that's a broader, let me think here. I think that in terms of, wow. That's why we call it the gauntlet. <laughs> it is. This one, this one in particular is trying. I'm trying to think of like, actual plays now that I've seen and which like what is may maybe my favorite adventure from an actual play and that's a really hard one to pin down but I, I don't think I can choose a favorite out of those um, but I will say out of the ones that I've 
played. Honestly, I haven't run many by the book adventures. I haven't even read mm-hmm. many fully <laughs> written adventures. Um, when I first got into D&D, when I first like had that group when none of us had played before, we did Lost Mine of Fendelver because it was it was the introductory adventure. We were all learning. Yep. And you know, while while there are some things that I would change about it now, it really served its purpose. It was actually an incredible tool for a starting D&D group. Um, so that one was great. Also, Storm King's Thunder does have like a little space in my heart because I intended to run it after Lost Mine of Fendelver and I read the whole book. Spoilers for Storm King's Thunder, by the <laughs> way. There is this Kraken in the book that kind of just happens. It's just like there. It's just, it's chilling, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is that? Hang on. Hang on. Pause. Stop. Hold the presses. <laughs> stop everything. And then I completely wrote an entirely different campaign that was like <laughs> very, very Storm King's Thunder inspired, had some of the same characters, yeah. same locations, some stuff like that, but was a completely different story about this Kraken. And then he had to get these different runes <laughs> from these different giant gods. And anyway, so even though I did not run Storm King's Thunder, <laughs> it does have a special place in my heart. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And again, similarly, it can be yours. could be an NPC of a game you watched. It could be a, a friend. It can be whatever that means to you. I was thinking about this question. I was thinking about like all the characters that I've run before. And it's very hard to pick one. But the first one that kind of oh, yeah. popped into my brain is I ran a cyberpunk campaign once. And I had this character who used the codename Black Cap. She was this haughty hacker person who had integrated her brain with an AI and was an antagonist at first. Um, It was basically one of the characters' backstories had her as an antagonist, but then they went from like enemies to allies to take down a larger threat, which is also a favorite trope of mine. Yep. (laughs) And she was just so much fun to play. I love her. Sam, final question. Yes. What gives you hope? the growing diversity in the TTRPG space. It's definitely a two steps forward, one step back situation, but it really is constantly evolving in overall forward direction. I think that over time, it's going to grow even further. It's amazing to see all of these different voices and perspectives and seeing the growth of that. Um, And then also just honestly, Gen Z. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think that every generation is getting more involved, more vocal. I am looking forward to seeing what happens in the next like 20 years. Sam, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> you have <gasps> not only passed through the, the daunting task that was put in front of you, but mm-hmm. you've also reached the end of your appearance here on Reckless A Talk. It was <sighs> lovely having you. But as a grand reward, as a gesture from I up on high to those who uh, were just uh, wonderful enough to come and stop by and and give me some of their time and energy, could you please tell all the people who have been listening once more who you are and where they can find you, how they can support you, how they can learn about all the cool shit that you have already done and you have coming up in the future? Sure. Thank you, Nathan. I am Sam Lee. I write games at Blinking Birch Games. You can find those games at blinkingbirchgames.itch.io. And you can find me basically at all platforms at Goblin Mixtape. TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, Tumblr, I'm there. If you're interested in these videos, um, I post to TikTok most often, but YouTube gets uploaded slowly over time when I feel (laughs) like it. (laughs) Very familiar with that phenomenon. Yep, Yep, yep. Sam, 
Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for having this me. This was lovely. This was amazing. Appreciate it. And dear listeners, goodbye. 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 <laughs>